the most profitable thing that you could choose to do over your lifetime is to account for the banking function in your life. Hello and welcome to the Durham Talents channel. My name is Jesse Durham. Welcome to today's episode where we are going to be discussing becoming a millionaire with the infinite banking concept. Let's begin by prefacing that you can start where you are. You indeed have to start right where you are. Now, when I came across the infinite banking concept and I first read R. Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, in 2015, I was just a young husband and father who is a teacher in North Carolina, paying into his 401k, contributing to his retirement plan, just living life, conventionally doing things. And I came across this idea of becoming your own banker, and I began to consider becoming a millionaire, building net worth, capital, the banking function, so many different things. So just like I started right where I was, you indeed can and indeed have to start right where you are. And I know that we all have different starting points. Some of you are already millionaires that are clients or prospective clients that are listening to this information or folks that are vetting this idea that are already there, already beyond. I wasn't, and and I started very humbly, probably, not having in, inherited anything and just my, my young wife and I starting out life together and building everything for ourselves. We had plenty of help along the way, don't get me wrong, but we did not start out as millionaires is what I'm saying. So practicing and implementing the infinite banking concept has been part of our progression on this journey for sure. And in fact, now, of course, it is the vanguard of everything that we do. And let's talk about why that is. Firstly, I believe that it's important, and that's why Nash mentions it so much and so early, the necessity of thinking long range. You know, the infinite banking concept, to be sure, is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It is not a get-rich-overnight implementation. It is a way to account for your need of finance as a household or as a business or as an investor over the course of your lifetime. And if it takes the average bear seven years, 14 years, 21 years, whatever the case may be, I would say that we should recognize that the time's going to go by either way. So the longer range we can think, the better off we're going to be. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't start right where you're at right now implementing infinite banking in a reasonable, well-founded manner because you can and, and you should. And I would promote the idea that you start between the parameters of doing what's reasonable and logical, these are Nash's words, and what is ambitious or using your imagination. So if you're already taking vacations, what if you implemented personally financing privately your vacations? If you're driving vehicles, what if you used your privatized banking system for financing your vehicles. It's something that you're already doing, so you can start literally right where you are right now. Now, again, I do also believe wholeheartedly in vetting this idea and learning this idea. Now, when I started, and I believe that when most people start, you don't know everything. In fact, that's part of learning from Nelson, Nelson's works is that he talks about the arrival syndrome. We're never going to be arrived and all-knowing so 
we should consider starting when we know enough to want to become our own bankers. So the further long range we can think, the better off we are, even if it takes years to account for our entire need of finance. The time's going to go by either way, so it is worth it. Becoming a millionaire is not going to happen overnight, unless you're playing the lottery, I suppose, and then the chances are 1 in 300 million or whatever they happen to be. But I would like to point out some things. Now, definitionally, a millionaire is someone who is worth $1 million. Very simple, very straightforward. Also, I believe that we should define the term net worth. Now, net worth is taking all of your assets and then minusing all of your liabilities. So assets over liabilities helps you arrive at your net worth. Assets minus liabilities equals your net worth. So what you own versus what you owe. So when you take what you owe, whatever that happens to look like, minus that from the known value of what you own, you arrive at your net worth. Now here, when talking about assets and the different characteristics that they have, we're going to notice that there are several characteristics to different assets, regardless of what that asset happens to be. So let's just make some examples. Let's take a property, for example. So a single family residence is illiquid. So that one particular characteristic is just describing, and that could be, it could be a, if it's a rental and it's cash flowing, there's another characteristic. But again, on the point of liquidity, for example, that house is not going to be as liquid as some other asset, perhaps, that may be able to be exchanged quicker than the paperwork and the legal ramifications may allow for a house. Precious metals, cryptocurrencies. I mean, there's so many different things that we can enumerate in our assets pile, let's say. And on this particular point of liquidity, they may be highly liquid, fairly liquid, or not very liquid at all, meaning illiquid. Just, just for some examples. Now, again, I'm not knocking on real estate. I enjoy real estate. I know we have clients that enjoy working with real estate, but I mention it because it's a, a common theme that we can consider for this particular point of liquidity. And there are lots of different reasons to do real estate, of course, I suppose, as far as you could add a property to your portfolio and it boosts your net worth. And again, once we're recognizing that net worth is what you own versus what you owe, you know, if you minus what you owe from that property to what that property is worth, and if it's over a million dollars, you're a millionaire. Now, I would point out some other factors as well, at least as far, and again, I'm not bashing on any particular investment or venture or asset. You choose what you want for yourself. But again, to have a conversation about these concepts, let's consider that a house's worth may fluctuate. So in, in one environment or in one part of the boom-bust cycle, a house may be valued at $200,000. Whereas at other times, that same property 
is evaluated for $100,000 less or $100,000 more. Considering where we're at in the boom bust cycle, considering inflation, just so many other variables. So what we see is that that number is not a static number. It very well may change depending on timing. And that could be another characteristic in and of itself. So characteristics like liquidity, access, how conservative or safe an asset is, ownership of the asset, is that private, also the tax implications of a particular asset, any hedging that there may or may not be over inflation, how exposed are we to litigation. So many, many different characteristics. And I enjoy talking about those characteristics. And obviously, if you've listened any length of time on this channel, you know that we look at everything through a lens, an infinite banking lens. And whole life policies that have been properly structured with a mutual company that pay a dividend fit many, over a dozen different characteristics that folks would look for in any kind of asset, any kind of asset. Of course, folks, it doesn't matter if we're investors or business owners or what have you. We want to have liquidity. We want to have access to our capital. We, we don't want to assume more risk than we need to. Again, I understand that folks have different levels of risk tolerance, and that's fine too. But having access to our capital, for example, with less risk is obviously better than a situation where we don't have access to our capital and yet we assume greater risk. Are you following me there? So lots of factors concerning the characteristics of assets will contribute to our true net worth, our true status as millionaires or billionaires or what have you. Because again, depending on things like timing and how liquid something is and can we get that actual enumeration in hand based off of what the market is doing. So market volatility and whether or not we're exposed to that. These characteristics matter is all I'm saying for discussion sake to provoke thought. And regardless of what kind of asset we're talking about, what I would point out here, of course, is that ultimately every asset is financed. All of these liabilities and assets that we would consider on this course to becoming millionaires and beyond, they're financed. So, of course, I'm going to say that if we account for our need of finance and if we understand and then implement infinite banking so that we can privately finance the things within our financial footprint then not only can we have the assets that we want and be on our path to becoming a millionaire or beyond a millionaire, but we're building up more assets to be able to do that. So we can be leveraging certain assets for the investments that we want to do. And then that's just adding to our net worth. That's just adding to the cash flows that we could experience. That's just adding to, again, this progress towards becoming a millionaire or beyond a millionaire, if that's something that we're interested in. Now, a quick point here. Just by using the terminology millionaire, because again, I I was not a millionaire when I got started in life as a, as a brand new married man, pursuing a career and then beginning a family and 
So I, I, that was not my that was not my starting position. And I may have had certain ideas about money and millionaires. And, and you may have certain ideas about money millionaires. What I would like us to consider is if we knew of someone, we had a good friend, baseball fanatic, who had this ambition, this desire, this goal, was actively working on owning a million different baseball cards. She's like, book after book, cabinet after cabinet, their goal, and they were actively working towards that goal, was to own a million baseball cards of their choice. It doesn't matter what, what kinds they were, but my question here in, in provoking this thought, I hope, is would we have any particular judgment towards that person outside of just thinking, that guy loves baseball, that guy loves baseball, that's their thing, boy, they're fired up about it. No, it's baseball cards. But this is where I would like to point out that, well, there's no difference between a million baseball cards and a million dollars. So just as far as our thinking of, of money goes, let's remember that money is just a means of exchange, meaning we would exchange a dollar for a gallon of milk. Or if we had a gallon of milk and wanted to sell it for a dollar, we could do that. No, not in this economy today, for sure. Um, hello, inflation. But follow what I'm saying. We exchange dollars for gasoline, dollars for grocery, dollars for houses, dollars for vacations, dollars for... All these different things. And all of those things are sold for dollars. So a dollar, that green piece of paper, is just a means of exchange. That's just agree, the agreed upon legal tender, legal note, means of exchange. So if we're not going to judge somebody who's who's got a million baseball cards or looking to get a million baseball cards... Maybe we should reconsider our thinking about dollars. I just use baseball for an example. I hope you're understanding the reason why I bring that up. I, I found it a useful thought experiment for myself. Now, let's run a quick scenario. Let's run a scenario because I know what the financial entertainment world says regarding anything about whole life insurance. I get it. Let's point out a couple of things here. And then we'll run our scenario. The first thing that I'd like to point out as a tempering thought against what the financial entertainment world is saying about whole life insurance is the idea that we can more readily buy net worth than we can build net worth. So follow what I'm saying here. We've defined what it means to be a millionaire. We've defined net worth. So once you reach a particular net worth, you're a millionaire. Okay. Well, if you could go through the underwriting process and arrive at a, um, an amount of premium that you would like to pay to own a properly structured whole life policy with a mutual company that pays a dividend that you could use to begin to finance your lifestyle or your business or your investing, and that policy 
gave you a $1 million death benefit. Does that or does that not add to your net worth? It does. <laughs> Rhetorical question, sorry. It does. And, and perhaps in more than one way than folks would like to recognize at face value. Now, when you own such a policy, you have certain things that are guaranteed to you. When you have elected that premium amount that you're wanting to pay to own that policy, all of the other obligations are on that insurance company that you're a part owner of to perform. One is certainly going to be that guaranteed permanent death benefit. Permanent policy giving you a guaranteed death benefit, or at least as guaranteed as anything can be, uh, financially speaking, guaranteed death benefit. But also, because that is a permanent whole life policy, that future death benefit is represented today or any given day once that policy is in force with a surrender value, a cash value of that policy. And you as the owner of that policy stand first in line to be able to leverage the cash value of your policy. So you could take out a policy loan when that policy is in force for your need of finance. So that cash value that's represented today of that greater future death benefit, does that or does that not add to your net worth? Does that future death benefit not, or does it indeed add to your net worth? Yes, it does. Beautiful. Now, realizing that in life we're going to build businesses, we're going to pursue careers, we're going to make investments, whatever it is that you have going on, whatever it is that I have going on, we're going to do that anyway. But if we account for our need of finance in those things and we systematically acquire policies that we own and control to be able to build a privatized banking system to that end, we are then, and, and if you're a client, you know, we've had these conversations. We're talking about net worth. We're talking about how these policies are going to be used to account for your need of finance in the next 12 months. So like right away in this first year of having this policy enforced, what do you intend to use your policy for? Now, you could just simply be using that to acquire capital, knowing good and well that you can access that capital while it's guaranteed to grow and not in, be interrupted, that compounding. You could be using that policy for financing your vehicles, financing educations, so everything. So many different things. It's the infinite banking concept. What is it you want to use it for? So you're doing that again, all while everything else is going on in regards to you're still building your family or pursuing your career, growing your business, developing your investment portfolio. Particularly financially speaking, again, if you're on this journey to become a millionaire or you're a millionaire and you're, you're working for beyond, then when you're a prospective client, we're having that conversation again about how this plays into your net worth and your future plans and your your plans for implementation with your capital from this policy or system of policies. 
And if you're vetting this idea, then you're trying to consider, well, what is this infinite banking concept and is it for me? And you're wanting to understand it. And I applaud you for being here. Thanks for being here. Leave comments, email, contact me. Let's carry this conversation on. Let's get you the answers that you need to know about how you could use this to be about the business of becoming a millionaire and beyond. So when you buy a policy, you're procuring death benefit for yourself, guaranteed cash values and the access to them. Also, the death benefit that will be a tax-free transfer of wealth to the next generation or your heirs, your beneficiaries, whoever you designate. Now, let's run this thought experiment. Let's take, for example, because again, I know what's said out there in the financial entertainment world about everything whole life or infinite banking. Firstly, Nash said it the best. He said, most people's understanding of life insurance is based off of someone else's misunderstanding of life insurance. So I, I will not hesitate to ask, what do you really know about whole life insurance? What do you really know about the banking function? And I don't, I don't mean that in a condescending way. I'm a student on my journey. I just happened to have started seven years ago and I've purchased multiple policies from multiple companies and use those policies for our need of finance and paying off student loans and financing vacations and paying off vehicles and so many different things that we've decided to do. Buying business equipment, we've done it. So we pay significant premiums we own multiple policies. I'm just someone who's on this journey as well. Spent several years just as a consumer, just as someone who is practicing this idea and using it in my life. Uh, before I began to professionally coach and mentor and write business so that other folks could do this as well. Now, let's take this example scenario of a 20-year-old who buys whole life insurance. And again, all things are going to be equal otherwise. Building a family, pursuing a career, all the things, whatever that happens to be. The other 20-year-old buys term insurance, as is popularly condoned, invests the difference, it, you know, a 401k, an IRA, but again, same family situation, same health, in the same field, doing the same job, just let's make everything else the same for an apples on apples scenario. Now, imagine with me where a 20-year-old is at. Now, at, at, at surface value, Okay, uh, the person who procured whole life insurance for sure has a greater capitalization taking place. They are paying greater amounts if they've got a properly structured policy that's actually going to be able to be significant enough to use for their need of finance beginning at age 20. In comparison with the individual with term insurance, that person is paying far less for their term insurance. And the rest, again, we're, we're going to have to make a supposition here, of course, is that they actually do invest uh, the equivalent. So if the, if the dollar amount were the same, okay, the amount of dollars going towards whole life insurance versus the amount of dollars that go towards term insurance and an RA or a 401k, just for example, if those amounts are the same, you know where they're at in their 20s, let's go on to their 30s. So here they are in their 30s. The family's grown. They've bettered themselves in their career. 
all things being equal, we're 10 years along the way of premiums being paid. Now, there may have been some jump from 20 years old to 30 years old, of course, here for this, this term insurance. We're probably not talking about very much. It's still a mere fraction, admittedly. Still a mere fraction of what the individual who bought whole life insurance is paying. Now, let's take an evaluation further. These 30-year-olds, the one having paid a significant amount of money for their whole life insurance, the other are paying a fraction, but still investing the rest into that 401k or that IRA. Now, at 30, do they both have life insurance if they've continued to pay their premiums? Yes, absolutely. Now, let's consider their capital and some of these characteristics that we've already mentioned. Does the individual with the term life insurance get any access to capital from their premium payments, no matter how small? No, none. It's all cost. It's all cost. There's no cash value to term life insurance. But they've been investing diligently in that 401k. Same question. What access to capital is there? Well, there may be access to capital, but then, of course, we have to consider, well, how have those funds performed over the past 10 years? What fees have been paid uh, or are going still going to be paid uh, for those funds that were under management? Can they access without penalty? No, they cannot access without penalty. Will there be uh, massive tax implications, even if this is a Roth IRA? And again, I'm not making... I'm not making tax advice. I'm not making investment advice. I'm just having a conversation about the banking function. Will there be tax implications? Yes. Um, will there be terms and conditions to meet? Yes. So that just is what it is. The, the, we're seeing, uh, we're getting an idea of what the liquidity looks like, what the paperwork may look like, what the access, the risk. We have no idea about the risk. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. On the other side, we have that whole life policy that is 10 years mature. Now, that is a fairly mature policy. Now, all it does is get better and better day over day, week over week, month over month, year over year. The most efficient policy is the oldest policy. This policy has gone through a capitalization phase where probably, prob and structure matters, okay, but it is quite possible that this policy has gotten to a point where it is mature enough and efficient enough that the premiums that have paid this policy, and remember from day one, from the very first year that that policy was in force, there was a guaranteed right to access capital in that policy. Year one. I'm not saying wait till year 10. This is, <laughs> these are just spot checks along. But let's say 10 years later, the premiums were paid. Every, this, the amount was the same for all those 10 years. And now we get to a point where the cash value growth from year nine to year 10, let's say, or year 10 to year 11. And again, this could, there's, this depends on structure. But certainly it is possible that from year nine to year 10, that policy grew in cash value by the same amount or more 
of the premiums that were paid. So just for simple numbers, decimals move left and right. I'm not hung up on numbers. Follow the principle. If $10,000 were paid, but there was an $11,000 growth from year 9 to year 10, okay, so that was an entity where we put 10 in and got 11 out or had access to 11? Yes. But another very important point is to notice that, well, even if we did access 11, just for simple math, $11,000 in that year, the policy has continued to grow uninterrupted. That compounding has taken place as if the full amount were still in the policy. So when we take a policy loan from the company, which we're part owner of, when it's a mutual life insurance company, we're taking a policy loan from the general fund account of that company. We're not taking dollars out of our policy. We are leveraging the death benefit, the cash value of the policy. It's a perfectly collateralized appreciating asset. There's so much here. What a contrast when we wrap our minds around it. What a contrast. So we have access. We have guaranteed growth. We have protection against litigation. We have protection and a hedging against inflation. It's conservative. We maintain control and ownership. So many different things. These characteristics that are important that help us again on this way to. So again, I'm not saying don't. Let me say, I'm not saying don't get the 401k, but what if you could fund a whole life policy and enjoy all the benefits of a an appreciating asset that you can then leverage and fund a 401k with? It's the and asset. You could do both. You could do both. So I hope I've said enough, and we're just at year 10. And again, these are just principles. I'm not trying to get bogged down in the numbers. Nash said with third grade math, you can understand this idea. So that's why I'm just speaking what this is to you. And I may show some slides on here. I, I like seeing visuals. They help me. Okay, year 40. That term insurance is getting more expensive, but again, relatively minimal. Relatively minimal. Again, we still have the same questions. At 40 years old, how, how have those dollars performed for us in that 401k? I don't know. You don't know. Are we in a boom or are we in a bust? Are we in a bear? Are we in a bull market? I don't know. You don't know. I won't know. You won't know. But we do have an idea of, well, we're going to be paying fees on the entire amount the entire time. That's going to compound. We still are penalized if we try to access funds early. There still very well may be massive tax implications, terms and conditions. They are what they are. Over here, we've paid the same premium amount for 20 years now. We're 40 years old, and that policy has just got more and more efficient. So the cash value that we have available to us has just grown day over day, week over week, month over month, year over year. And again, 20 years down of paying, this policy has done nothing but get more and more efficient to where the premium dollars, and I haven't even spoken much if at all about dividends just yet. All that does is add to the compound growth. 
we have more and more cash available, even to the point of we have more cash available than we've paid premiums. Now, again, I don't know if that exactly happens in year 40 for everyone because it doesn't. Everything's different, you know, 20 years of, of owning a policy. But what we do know is we still maintain access, still have guaranteed growth, hedge against inflation, litigation protection, all these other different characteristics. And then again, I still have all this time. I, I don't even know if I've mentioned about what it would look like if we added the factor that we can use these cash values for something else, which I should. I, I should because I'm not just saying have a policy for a policy sake or because we're talking about the infinite banking concept. We're talking about accounting for your need of finance. What if you have all the benefits that I'm talking about in comparison in comparing this whole life policy versus a term policy for equal subjects. But the big differentiating factor, too, for sure, is what we do with these cash values, what we can finance, what we can buy, what we can invest in, whatever it is that we want to do. So year 50. Now, think about this. 30 years have elapsed. And we're still about another 10. Okay, well, let's just go ahead. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead. I mean, just think about what careers are looking like, families are looking like, all the different things that are happening in this meantime that folks are going to finance. See, that's why Nass said, if we will account for our need of finance. Now, just think about all the financing that both these individuals are going to do from the time that they were 20 years old to the time that they were 60, and we're not done. But that 40-year time frame, they both had access to the same things. They both could have had whole life insurance or term life insurance. They both could have invested or not invested or a 401k done well or not done well in the career. So if all things are the same, we know that they're both going to finance everything that they do. The vacations, the college, their children's weddings, passive income for upcoming years, all these different things, they're going to be financed one way or another. Who controls that function? That's the question. If we account for it, that's what changes everything. So here we are at 60 years old. This term insurance is becoming more... All that happens with term insurance is, yes, it's very inexpensive in the beginning, but certainly it is possible to get to a point where it becomes just too costly. Okay, too costly. I mean, just look up statistics if you want to see how many people maintain term insurance in force all the way to their graduation, all, to, all the way to their passing, okay, versus permanent whole life insurance, okay? So this one's likely just not to have it. So all that cost that was paid over all these years, it's evaporated. It's gone. Likewise, the 401k, what's its value? I don't know. You don't know. They won't know. Their advisor won't know. Now they can access whatever is there when they do. And of course, then there'll be forced access in the future. There will be forced distributions if we walk this out another 10 years. We don't know what's there. All the risk was assumed, to be sure. Fees are going to be paid on the entire amount, and that was compounded over the entire time. 
There is, there really is. There's, there's, there's so much there. We don't have life insurance. What happens when those funds eventually transfer to the next generation? Is it taxed again? I'm not a tax expert. I'm just, this is the conversation. Whereas over here, this person with a whole life policy has had the ability to finance things over the past 40 years. They've been able to access the capital in this whole life policy without, without losing their death benefit. They've maintained permanent guaranteed death benefit still while accessing the capital to finance vacations and business equipment or whatever the things were that they were going to do anyway. All that policy has done is just got closer and closer to that death benefit amount, which is the bigger amount. And of course, if they're applying their dividends that they earn to buy more paid up additional insurance, then all that does is drive up the death benefit, which drives up the cash value, and then that's just more capital for them to be able to access, to be able to finance different things, to be able to just get that back into their system, plus the interest that they otherwise would have lost that this individual over here did because they didn't account for their need of finance. They didn't account for the banking function in their life. And in the end, they lost what insurance they did have when they could afford to pay for it. So there's much more that we could say here, and, and perhaps I should walk this on out because the average average maturity is something like 77 uh, in, in the United States at this time. Don't hold me to that. Something like 77. So let's go to age 80. For sure, the, the term insurance just, it's just it's just become too much, too much to pay for. We don't know what the assets have, have done over here, how they've performed if we can call them assets, we're, we're certainly in the realm of obligatory required distribution. So whether we'd like to keep those funds in the 401k growing, because perhaps it is doing well, we have to be taking out of it. Whereas over here, we're the policy owner. We decide you know, when or when not to access the cash value that is in our policy and we know that even if we've accessed over the past 60 years, even if over the past 60 years we've accessed the capital and we've played honest banker, you know, we borrowed from ourselves under our own terms and conditions. And then we financed what it was that we were going to finance, bought the new car. And then we made that car payment back into our privatized banking system. So we recapture that interest that we otherwise would have lost. We recapture the principal. If we're doing anything that's earning us income, we could be putting that extra back in. So profits are going in there as well. It's just a stark, stark, stark difference. So again, going back to the original source material, Nash said that practicing the infinite banking concept, accounting for your need of finance, is the most profitable thing that you could choose to do over your lifetime. So if becoming a millionaire or moving beyond a millionaire, I mean, however far ahead you can think, however long range you can think, what if we could, what if we could impact that next generation starting point? What if we could impact four generations? What if we could impact eight generations down our family tree? So I hope that this conversation has been helpful. If you're on your journey, 
I'm here to encourage you. And if you'd like to have a conversation about how to implement the infinite banking concept into your household or your life or your investing on your way to be a millionaire, then you can reach me at 828-817-4223. Or you can email DurhamTalents at gmail.com. This has been a great pleasure for me. I look forward to our next conversation. Have a great day. Take care. All of these liabilities and acts, all of these liabilities and assets. Yeah, millionaire. 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 Arr, shiver me timbers, millionaire. <laughs> millionaire. Deep in the heart of the Serengeti, millionaire.